Welcome to 90 Sunday. It's a special weekend. That's the last time you'll ever see me singing on this stage out loud, okay? So that's the, there are two people on this earth that think I sound good when I sing. Me and the Lord, and that's it. <laughs> it's bad. Okay, I'm sweating. Got some pictures of you guys. We asked you to send in some 90s photos of you, so here we go. We got Jen Inman here. Uh, classic 90s photo, lots of floral. We got Jake Cavanaugh, this next one here, which looks just like a redheaded Stephen Rutledge. Uh, I like that. We got Courtney Grimm here, and I don't know if you can know this, but she is watching Full House, Candace Cameron from Full House on a big old box TV. Then we got James Sanborn um, in what I believe is a denim vest. Now, that morning, he knew he had a family portrait, and he goes into his closet, and he goes, that's the winner right there. <laughs> we got Preston and Olivia Johnson, who knew that these two young kids would fall in love at some point um, and have two beautiful daughters. How can you beat that? Well, you can beat that if you're Madi and Johnny Alvarez, because they did fall in love in the 90s, and they have four beautiful daughters now. So... Uh, then uh, Jessica Martinez right here, um, and then uh, Lauren Garcia wearing a Lion King Simba sweatshirt. Classic 90s. It was a great decade, great decade. Um, some of the fads from the 1990s, some of the things that we had all the time. Answering machine. Answer, you guys remember these? Classic 90s. Slap bracelets, I got mine on, do you have yours? Uh, when I was in school, they actually banned these because kids were like fighting with them and stuff. Uh, clever marketing. The 80s might have had Where's the Beef, but we had Waza, Waza, right? How can you beat Yokiero Taco Bell, right? That Chihuahua. The 90s, the 90s. It was the home of Crystal Pepsi. When this came out, this was huge. It's Pepsi, but it's clear. And there was like this massive launch campaign during the Super Bowl for Crystal Pepsi. There was America Online. We alluded to this earlier. Logging on to the internet. Who remembers that amazing noise? Oh, that was good. Then Oregon Trail. Maybe one of the greatest video games of all time. Okay, that one's a home run. You either gonna you know save the day and make it, or you're gonna die of diphtheria. So, music in the '90s. Uh, let's break it down by genres. There was alternative, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Stone Temple Pilots, Pearl Jam. That was my jam back in the day. Then rap. You can't. Tupac, Biggie Smalls, Eminem. One of those is not like the others. Uh, R&B, R&B, TLC, Boys to Men, Tony Braxton. Salt and pepper, shoop. <laughs> Classic. Pop. We had some girl bands. Ace of Bass started us off the decade really nice, right? Then the Spice Girls. Then boy bands. We had NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. A lot of fans there. Maybe not so much of this next boy band, Hanson. How many Hanson fans we got in here? Mbop. Okay. Don't be shy. You had a poster. And then it just really summarizes the 90s. This, this artist is a category of her own. Lisa Loeb, stay. You say, so good. Now, TV shows, home improvements, right? 
Great, great show. The Simpsons took over the decade. Reading Rainbow. Just take a look. It's in a book. <laughs> Friends, primetime television, right? Still some Friends fans. Then there was this one block of shows that happened at the end of the week called TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. Right? Full House. How rude. Family Matters introduced us to Steve Urkel. Did I do that? Uh, TJF was great. Then sketch comedy really took off again in the 90s with SNL, In Living Color, Mad TV. Uh, the movies, we had uh, Jurassic Park. That was terrifying. We had Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, and uh, one of my, Home Alone, Macaulay Culkin, right? And then, of course, Braveheart. What will you do without freedom? Uh, love that movie. Then one of my wife's favorite movies, Titanic. Jack and Rose, top of the world. Leo actually dominated the 90s. Here's early 90s Leo, mid-90s Leo, and then late 90s Leo, okay? Spans all 10 years. In the news, you know that your heart stopped in the 1996 Olympics when Carrie Strug hurt her ankle and then she still had to complete the next vault. And if she completes the next vault, the USA wins gold. And so she runs as fast as she can, and, and she leaps up onto that vault, and she does a spin, and then you all know, right, this? And then, oh, I mean, it's here, here, oh. I remember like it was yesterday. We all cheered a little extra loud when they won that gold medal. It was amazing. Waco, Texas, 1993. The Branch Davidians standoff in the fire, resulting in the deaths of nearly 81 people, including their leader, David Koresh. I remember hearing about the wacko in Waco, watching it on the news all the time. In 1998-99, there was the Clinton-Monica Lewinsky scandal. Clinton was accused of having a sexual relationship with a 22-year-old White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. Leads to impeachment of Clinton and later on that year, uh, but he was acquitted of all impeachment charges of perjury, obstruction of justice in a 21-day Senate trial, and it took over the news. And to end the decade, we were all in fear about something. Two letters, one number. Y2K. What's going to happen? In 1999, along with the rest of the world, the U.S. prepares for possible effects of the Y2K bug in computers. Problems were anticipated and arose because many computer programs represented uh, a four-digit date, a four-digit year, in just two. So 1999 was just 99, and then we'll go to double O. The computer's going to freak out, and the world is going to end. Insurance companies sold insurance policies covering failure of businesses due to Y2K problems, and survivalist-related um, products uh, increased business in the final months of 99. Total cost of the work done in preparation for Y2K was estimated at over $300 billion. I was a freshman in college uh, in, the, in the winter of 1999, and I, my friends and I, we didn't fear the apocalypse, okay? And, but we had some friends who did, 
and they had some friends who got, got together. And so what we did is at 11.45 that night, we drove over to their house. And we kind of hid, and then we went up to their power box, waited for the 10-second countdown. <laughs> 10, 9, 8, 7, this is going to be great. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. We could hear them counting, and then if they start freaking out, screaming. I heard someone say, save me, Jesus, save me. <laughs> it was hilarious. We fear lots of things. I grew up as a teenager in the 90s, and uh, how many of you guys remember this show? Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Now this is a story, right? And you could all go crazy right now. Don't. But, and, who, and in this show, uh, my favorite character wasn't Will. Oh, no. It wasn't Jazzy Jeff. Uh-uh. It wasn't uh, Jeffrey the butler. Nope. It wasn't Uncle Phil, because that would be weird. Uh, my favorite character and your favorite character was Carlton, Carlton Banks. He did this dance move, infamously called the Carlton. And every time Tom Jones, it's not unusual, would come up, he would dance the night away. I remember going to my first dance, seventh grade. I remember I wanted to be cool. So my brother and I, we, uh, we, we went in the bathroom and we practiced doing the Carlton, okay? And, we, we, and we're like, we're going to do this on the dance floor. It's going to be awesome. Everyone's going to think we're hilarious. And so we practiced the Carlton over and over and over again. Ashamedly so. And uh, that night we go to the dance. I put on, you know, some old school cologne, some Stetson or like some, you know, obsession. And, uh, and a put it on, and I am ready to go, seventh grade, I'm single and ready to mingle. And uh, we get to the dance, uh, my brilliant plan was to go to the DJ, at, request the song, and once he played it, I go out and I do the Carlton, and everybody just like loves it and cheers. And so I asked the DJ, and surprisingly, he had it. He had the song, and I was ready, okay? I had my hat on to the side, I had an earring in my left ear, and I had my shirt tucked in ever so slightly. And all of a sudden I heard that infamous, that horn section beginning. And I thought, this is it. And I was scared. So I ran. I hid in the bathroom. I don't know why I hid. Like, was the DJ looking for me or something? He wasn't. But how do you break the tension, the guys on one side of the dance floor and the girls on the other? Man. That was my plan, but I chickened out. Uh, I'd venture to say that fear crippled me then, and fear cripples us still today. Um, we're scared to share our faith because of what someone might say. We're scared to invite someone to church because they may reject our invitation. We're scared to go out on a limb because they may say no. We're scared to take that step of faith because we're not sure if God's got us. Fear often paralyzes us from moving forward in many aspects of our lives. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Um, starting in verse 16, it says this, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. 
Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have not seen cannot love God or whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. We see right here in 1 John 4 that the remedy for fear is not preparedness, not courage. The remedy for fear is love. Let's read it again. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. We fear lots of things. Spiders. Uh, We fear failure. We talked about that last week. And we fear rejection. And these fears usually stem from some bad experiences. Take fear of rejection, for example. How many of you have ever had like a significant rejection in your life? Like you were rejected in a powerful way and you still remember it and it still affects you. Raise your hand. Statistics show that all, throughout all of our lives, we'll have about five of those. Five of those, five people will reject us in such a way that it marks us and we're changed because of it. Um, now, new question. How many of you have interacted with like 10 people and you weren't completely rejected by them? Everybody. You've interacted 10 people in your life and th- there's 10 people who didn't completely reject you. Okay? Everyone's hands probably close. Okay, good. Um, now, 50 people, right? 100 people. Many of you would say, I've had 1,000 people that maybe they don't love me, but they certainly haven't completely rejected me. I haven't experienced a deep rejection from them. So just based on statistics, the five people that we've experienced deep rejection from over here and the thousands who haven't rejected us, we see that these rejections are extremely rare, right? You're not the weirdo. Those five people are, right? Uh, We've given those five people the power to hurt us and to affect us. And we can live in this fear of rejection most of our lives. And it's in fact so rare. We're giving those five people power in our lives to to help determine the trajectory. And they're the outlier. We fear it. We give power in our lives to them but it rarely happens, just like Y2K. You know what happened in Y2K? Nothing. We were fine. Small glitches here and there. I contend that the Apostle John is onto something. The cure for fear is not preparedness, it's love. Get lost in the love of God and watch it cast out fear in your life. Now, there's a stark difference between um, concern and fear, okay? Concern is when you look at improbable or you look at probable difficulties and it moves you to action. Fear, anxiety, worry is when you look at improbable events and it prompts you to inaction. We should have concern, right? We should be aware, we should be prepared, but fear, anxiety, worry plagues on things that won't even happen. And then we just fear it, think about it, dwell on it, cause it to lose, us to lose sleep about it, and we never do anything practical about it. And Jesus says perfect love casts out fear. He shows us a better way. You're barring trouble from tomorrow, things that we don't even know are going to happen. What do you fear? What are you worried about? What keeps you up at night? What risk might God be calling you towards and you've hid yourself in a bathroom? Music might be playing, but fear's paralyzed you. God says to Joshua, four times just in the first chapter, be strong and courageous. And he says, be strong and very courageous. 
there's no courage unless you're scared. Perfect love casts out fear. There's no fear in love. Love drives out fear. In 1991, an African-American man named Rodney King was beaten by white Los Angeles police officers. In 1992, these officers were acquitted and the Los Angeles riots began. Uh, it resulted in over 60 deaths, $1 billion in damage. The riots left more than uh, 4,000 people injured. In 1995, retired professional football player Orenthal James Simpson was arrested and acquitted of that murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. The trial, which lasted nine months, became worldwide. Throughout the trial and in the media, racism took center stage. These events that happened 25 years ago in our nation, you'd think we'd be in a much better spot now, right? Is racism still around? Do our prejudices still influence us, whether they're spoken or not? Do we still have issues facing us? I say yes, unequivocally so. First John, we love because he first loved us. Anyone who has given us this, and he has given us this command, verse 21, anyone who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Racial reconciliation is a non-negotiable for Christ followers. It, it's, it's part of what it means to be a gospel person. Breaking down the divides. Now immediately every single person in this room is saying, that's great, I agree. I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. And I agree with you. I know most of you guys. You're not. Um, but the disease of prejudice goes so much deeper than we think. Prejudice is an unexamined feeling with a misunderstood basis. It means that we think in principles, categories, rather than truly meeting people. And there are two types of prejudice in our country um, and in, in our world. There's individual racism pre prejudice, right? And that's when, when I say uh, everyone here would say that I'm not racist, that's what you would be thinking of, right? That individual uh, mindset. But we're not just talking about black and white. There are all kinds of prejudice that permeates our culture. If you are boarding an airplane and a Middle Eastern man starts to put his bags above in the overhead compartment, what's going through your mind? There are many depictions of Jesus. I just want to say from the get-go, Jesus was a first-century Palestinian Jew, okay? Uh, I've seen pictures of Jesus where he's got blue eyes. He's blonde, okay? Jesus didn't have blue eyes. Just want to let you guys know. He wasn't Swedish. Okay. There was some artists that did a digital rendering of what a first-century Jewish person like Jesus might look like, and this is what they came up with. The truth is, if we saw Jesus walk around today... Some of us might think he's a terrorist. He wasn't white. It's a bigger problem than black and white. Uh, how is this an issue for us? In what ways are we prejudiced and how can we become more Christ-like? People who break down walls than people who build them up. People who bring it coming close rather than keep our distance. 
The second type of racism is systemic racism. And I want to read, read this definition here. Systemic and sociological condition that creates an environment in which particular kinds of people are excluded from the positive norms of that institution. It is the collective misuse of power that results in diminished life opportunities for some racial groups. It is an important distinction to look at personal racism and institutional racism. We think that if we can just convert people and change their hearts, it will eradicate racism. And there's certainly some truth in that. Without personal change, we won't ultimately get rid of it. But we can pass laws, but if we don't change hearts, we'll still battle racism. But the other side of the coin is true. If we don't, if we don't have just laws and institutions, we un unwitting, unwittingly continue to propagate racism, even with good hearts. Let me put it this way. Um, Here's a parable that will help you understand what I'm talking about. Jim and Nancy are, are friends who are both trying to lose weight. And they answer an ad in a group to go to Camp Flabaway. Okay? Camp Flabaway. They, here they promise you that you will drop 60 pounds in eight weeks. What they don't know, what Bob and, and Nancy don't know, is that a weight loss program is actually a research organization that's studying weight loss. And so as soon as they check in, they're sent to two different parts of the camp. Um, Nancy attends the camp that's offered. It has every kind of exercise equipment available. It's beautiful. There's a personal trainer. Delicious, healthy foods are offered. Uh, it's amazing. Everyone there is excited about losing weight. It's the perfect environment for weight loss. Jim, on the other hand, attends the camp that has a single building, no exercise equipment, no personal trainers. In fact, the only thing there is a big screen of TV with lots of movies, diet that consists only of junk food, almost an impossible environment to lose weight. People from both camps come together for the weigh-in. After two weeks, Nancy lost 15 pounds and she was thrilled. Jim gained three. Nancy was horrified. Jim, what's wrong with you? How can you possibly gain weight in this place? You better get serious and try harder. So Jim said, yes, you're right. I've got to try harder. So we went back, doubled his efforts. At the next weigh-in, Nancy had lost another 13 pounds. Jim gained another two. She said, Jim, I can't believe you're missing the opportunity. Are you not motivated? Don't you care? Are you lazy? What's wrong with you? And Jim says, I, I don't know how you're doing it. It's, it's not as easy as you make it sound. I don't think Camp Flabaway is being fair to me. They've made it really difficult. Nancy fires back. I can't believe you're blaming other people. You just need to change your attitude and work harder. Nancy, of course, assumes that Jim's environment is exactly like hers. By not understanding how Jim's environment affects initiative and choices, she mistakenly assumes that the problem was all personal rather than systemic. Spirit of the living God, give us eyes to see the systemic racism that is around us, that is present. I am white and I'm a male. I don't know what it's like to be a minority in our country, but I'm learning and I'm listening and by being in a relationship with those that are. God's concerned about this. First John 4, as the worship band comes up, he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. We love our white brothers and sisters. We love our black brothers and sisters, our brown brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters of a different religion. 
We love our brothers and sisters who are gay. According to Jesus, someone else's skin color, someone else's religion, someone else's lifestyle has no bearing on whether or not we should love them. We love them all. We love everyone. Anyone who loves God must love others. Who's God calling you to love? How can you practically show that love? What do you fear? What risk is God calling you towards that we've stayed behind? Um, as we close, 90s um, didn't just have cheesy worship songs with horns. Uh, they were powerful in the time, and God used them in such a powerful way in my life. Um, but there was this song written in the late 90s when, when the worship kind of buzz started to really take off, this guy named Matt Redman was, was, was at the center of it all. He was selling CDs like crazy. And he was getting complaints. Oh, we love this song. Play this song, but don't play this song. Uh, and then he just said, you're missing the point. And so he wrote a song called Heart of Worship. And it starts off, when the music fades, all is stripped away. And so what we're going to do as we close our time together, we're going to sing this song. We're going to throw it back to the 1990s. And we're going to strip down worship. And the music will fade. All is stripped away. We simply come before God, longing to bring something of ourselves more than a song. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you give us eyes to see the ways in which prejudice plays out in our life and in our city and in our jobs and in our, wor in our world. I pray in Jesus' name, God, that you move us out of fear. Fear paralyzes, but we rebuke it in Jesus' name. And we pray, God, that we're so filled up with the love of God that it flows out that we love others. We need you, Jesus. We love you, God. We want to bring you more than a song. We want to bring you ourselves. We want to bring you our mindsets. We want to bring you our struggles and our shortcomings and our failures. We want to bring you more than a song. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this song together?